Hi, everybody. Today's Monday, uh, March 13th, not Friday the 13th, Monday the 13th. I'm not sure what that portends. Uh, perhaps my, my guest today, who will self-introduce, Paul Friters, uh, will be able to answer that and many other questions. Paul, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and why are you here today? <laughs> Good morning, Randall, and thanks for having me again on the show. Yes, I'm Professor Paul Friders. I've been an academic most of my life. Um, I'm a professor of economics, and I'm here to talk about the aftermath of all the COVID authoritarianism and what the future might look like. Lovely. So I, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours. Um, I had you on last time. We talked about uh, your variation of QALY, which is quality adjusted life years. Um, I don't want to go over that again. I'll put a link to it. Uh, but what have you been working on in the meantime? Um, and and what what is what, what do you mean by uh, kind of the situation we have with the resistance? Um, well, I've I've been working on various things. I've been working on as with standard academic staff, you know, teaching students about well-being and about governance in order to keep the bills paid, as it were. Um, and uh, meanwhile, resistance-wise, I've I've mainly been writing with uh, co-authors of mine in Australia and Thailand. Uh, about what we could do to improve our institutions once sanity returns to those institutions, as it were, reform ideas once uh, a, a large majority is convinced that things are very bad and we really need to change something. Um, and we've we've worked on that in, in various areas. We've worked on that when it comes to media. We've worked on that when it comes to uh, the civil service as a whole. We've worked on that when it comes to what we ourselves can do the coming 10 years. Um, we've worked on that when it comes to how to deal with charities, how to deal with huge inequality, how to deal with taxation. And so we, we've sort of tried to assemble as, as best we can with quite a few different co-authors, uh, a whole set of possible reforms that we can go through in the West in a far, far future. All right. So so let's, let's uh, just structure. What is the problem? Uh, what was the problem exhibited? You mentioned authoritarianism. What's, what was the prob problem exhibited during COVID? Was COVID just a sign of other issues? Or was it a, a, a kind of a, a, a black swan or, you know, an oddity? Um, well, I think that COVID, as it were, itself started out with a huge panic that was unintended, that was sort of a, a surprise, but that was extremely quickly put upon by opportunists in government, corporations and politics for their own agendas. And so it very quickly went from what was, as it were, a, a, a panic that went via social media that was fanned by governments for all kinds of reasons, um, but then got a life of its own, a huge panic. But then governments, corporations, and other entities jumped on it in order to make money, expand their power, keep population terrified. And so uh, then, as it were, a, a huge authoritarian beast emerged. Now, part of that beast had already been, as it were, under construction for a long time. So in some sense, you know, the panic just allowed a, a monster to come out of the shadows that was already building and forming, but that we hadn't yet quite seen uh, before so clearly, uh, and that now is sort of, you know, a recognized problem by, by pretty much everybody in the resistance coming from all kinds of political traditions. Um, and so now the question is, okay, what do we do? Uh, and of course, there's lots of people who are still going over the history of how that sort of authoritarian monster emerged and the, the forces that make it up, which include the mass media, the top Western politicians, uh, big pharma, the big tech executives, 
most of us were the super rich class, but also a, a lot of us were the globalist elite. Um, and that's been sort of well recognized. We sort of know their game in some sense uh, and how they've been forming and what sort of what their ideologies look like. Uh, but now, of course, the question is, well, what do we do? How do we organize ourselves as a resistance? Where's the hope? Uh, and also, what in the long run is the way to prevent a recurrence, to sort of uh, reform our societies, to go back to better times? And better times would have been, you know, 20 years ago, but even five years ago, life was much better. Average life expectancy in the U.S. was two years higher before the pandemic. So, you know, it's you, we don't need to go back far to say, well, then already life was a lot better than it is now. No, I agree. I call it the before times. <laughs> uh, I, I um, you know, see so many signs that, that um, I, I don't know, it's kind of an odd thing. You know, there are people who just seem to kind of carry on with it. Um, uh, I hang out with various uh, groups and social functions, you know, from my athletic clubs to an investment club to uh, my religious congregation. And one of them, uh, there's an MD, PhD, excuse me, an MD, MPH, so he's an MD and a Master of Public Health, and um, he won't uh, hang around for the um, luncheons, um, and he wears a mask during the, the, the actual function, um, and it's 2023. Um, there's kind of an odd uh, solidarity, it seems, amongst the, and he's, I, I would assume, kind of an elite and a decision maker on the public health establishment. Um, when, when did... So, so there are long, long periods of time we don't think at all about the public health establishment, the WHO, the CDC, or um, you know various organizations, whichever country you happen to be in. Um, but there's been, in a sense, a, a, a taking over um, by uh, these uh, non well, they're, they're they're bureaucracies, and they can be international bureaucracies. In the case of the WHO, uh, when did this happen? And is this the case of the tail wagging the dog, or was the was the tail always uh, the stronger part of the dog? Uh, geez, a lot of very important questions, Randall. Um, I don't think we quite know all the answers to that, but I, I think it is clear that, as it were, what, what I'm now calling the globalist class, and I'm thinking of that as a Western globalist class, not really international, because I think that the Western globalists have sort of been found out uh, and are being abandoned left, right, and center uh, in, in the world of today by Latin American countries, the Middle East, by the alliance of China, India, and Russia. So really, it's sort of a Western global alliance, if you like. Um, but of course, they were already extremely powerful and growing in power the last 20 years. So um, a person called David Rotkoff in 2008 published a book called The Superclass, and he already told of you know the, the tens of thousands of super rich or otherwise, as it were, elite globalists meeting in Davos, but also meeting elsewhere in the UN and meeting in other international institutions and sort of forming a class of their own that sort of felt superior to countries that didn't feel that they were beholden to national populations, but sort of felt that they were running the world and they were sort of telling each other how marvelous they were and how, you know, stupid everybody else was and that everybody else sort of needed to do what they thought uh, was good for them. And so uh, a class emerged of people thinking themselves superior, dreaming of running the world, and even of dreaming of sort of, you know, better humans and uh, totally different institutions, and hence, in some sense, the overthrow of nation states. Um, but I think that, that as it were, the COVID period 
almost coached out that monster. It, it, it made it grow. It made a lot of money for big pharma. It really accentuated the power of the big tech companies. It, it made these huge online businesses bigger at the expense of lots of local shops who just couldn't compete with online delivery models. And so it, it made the monster stronger, if you like, uh, but it also coached it out. It, it brought it out in the open. Mm -hmm. It started to overplay its hand with all the mass mandates, the forced vaccinations, the travel bans, uh, the lockdowns, the sort of the, the, the nonsense censorship stories. And so more and more people came to see, oh my God, you know, there was this sort of enormous group of elites and they all seem to be saying the same in different countries in the West. But not everywhere in the world. I mean, they really have been found out. Um, and so, what you now find, you know, in March 2023, is is quite extraordinary in terms of the resistance. You know, our side. I mean, our side now includes people like myself, who are a little bit sort of, you know, left of center, who are still working with governments in 2019. Uh, and and I find myself on the same side of people who've been. Uh, strongly Christian their whole lives, who sort of lived separate from a, a lot of the rest of society, uh, but also with libertarians, uh, classic liberals, uh, lots of real conservatives in there. It's, it's sort of a quite motley crew of people. And we look around and, and we find we agree on almost everything. And in fact, that all the things we used to disagree on, well, we still disagree on those, but they've shrunk into insignificance. It's, it's as if the distance that was there between us, you know, that, that, that sort of used to look big now looks like one centimeter compared to the kilometers that we are now all separated from, as it were, the shenanigans that the globalist class has foisted upon us. So uh, that's quite heartening, I find, right? And, and a lot of interesting conversations in that sense are, are taking place and a lot of tolerance is emerging. You know, I'm, I'm now, uh, find myself unbothered and other people are unbothered by what I think that five years ago would have left us all fighting. <laughs> and so that's a very interesting time, Randall. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sorry to interrupt because you're on a, a, an interesting point, but, you know, I'm thinking back to, um, I'm, I'm Jewish and the, you know, I, I read a lot on the aspects of the Holocaust and they're all, you know, to, to call people Jews is, is it's kind of a, a, you know, amongst the Jews, there's, uh, you know, many jokes. Um, uh, you know, there's one joke. It's like, oh, this is a very tiny town. There's there's three synagogues, only two Jews. It's like, um, so it's that that we I, I go to that one. He goes to that one. He says, well, what's the third synagogue? Like, oh, that's the one nobody goes to. Um, but but there's always been, you know, within, you know, there were there were Jews who were, you know, economically uh, adept, uh, running, you know stores and whatnot and, and commerce and whatnot and then there's also leftist and then there's small town whatever and there was a lot of internecine fighting and and you know amongst my grandparent era um you know they, they there was a lot of bickering you know people like my my parents uh you know had a mixed marriage they're both jewish but my my dad came from kind of more you know shtetl small town russia and my mom's family was they were from the austro-hungarian empire and they were kind of wealthier and upper class you know, there's all these divisions. So, but but then Hitler came along, etc., and everybody was a Jew. Everyone kind of got dumped into this one thing. And when they were in the concentration camps, it didn't really so much matter what their you know left, right, high class, low class. Everyone was was that thing. And so, it, it, you know, what you're talking about is in a sense kind of like the oppressor bringing together the oppressed. And it's like 
everybody winds up hurting the same way. Everyone feels pain the same way. And when you do, you have to kind of figure out a way to get out of that. And you wind up having allies. I mean, I'm not trying to make the, the situation analogous because I think there's always, you know, too much, you know, of Godwin's law where everything's Hitler. I'm not saying that, but, you know, clearly lockdowns, uh, you know, exhibited a, a threat and an imprisonment in a sense that had never happened before. I, I as, as one quick sideline, you know, my my next topic perhaps to write about is the the uh, the history of lockdowns in public health, and and frankly there isn't one. Um, I've been looking. There was in Sierra Leone in 2013 or something. There was a lockdown of a small area because of Ebola, and in 2014 in South Africa they locked down the uh, Pearson Hospital for tuberculosis, but it was already kind of a closed facility, and so forth. But there are very few lockdowns I think in the history of mankind ever. And how how so? Here's, here's the question. Sorry about the diversion. But uh, the question is, um, you know, economically or whatever, ha, 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 where did this concept of lockdown come across? And and since we're all kind of been locked down, um, was it an effective public health measure? And how did it play out economically? And what are the, the fights against those kinds of overreach? Oh, my God. Uh, geez, that's a lot of brackets opening down, though. Yeah, sorry, sorry, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's how I roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I'm not an historian of, of medical history, but I, I do understand that, as it were, the lockdowns, as they've been instituted in the US and in Europe, were just a carbon copy of what the Chinese did. So, yes, there were sort of, you know, some people who were sort of dreaming of somehow separating society uh, into all kinds of separate groups, but that was sort of never truly uh, implemented or was sort of even fought off in the extreme way that the Chinese did it. So the lockdowns, as we've now come to know it, are a Chinese invention and then copied by everybody else, uh, partly because all these health bureaucrats thought, oh, this looks rather marvelous, you know, and they sort of believe the Chinese, <laughs> this was successful. But of course, the health bureaucrats also thought, well, this is a lot of power. Um, and, and it sort of also fits a little bit the, the type of models that they were running then and the type of models that they had had sort of very simplistic assumptions in them. And, and one of them is that it's sort of possible to tell people to do nothing for months and not meet each other and thereby uh, prevent them from sort of exchanging viruses and bacteria and whatnot. But of course, the reality of modern life is that it's actually not possible. So the key thing to say about lockdowns is that they, they, they were a gigantic failure on their own terms because you can't keep people separate. I mean, they would starve, right? Uh, somebody needs to come down to change the, the electricity to sort of keep the water running. And of course, lots of people have got to sort of run around and keep the shops occupied. I keep the power stations running, go to the hospitals. And, and if you think about, about food, I mean, I, I most every day I wind up eating. Exactly. 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 Uh, and, and here's the other thing about lockdowns. I mean, lockdowns are, are uh, they almost force the worst kind of congregation to happen which is, of course, that you can tell people they shouldn't leave their home, but what if they're very sick? Well, they got to go to the hospital. they got to go to the doctor. And who are they going to meet there? They're going to meet the other sick people, namely, you know, all the COVID sufferers and that. And you can put 20 masks on them, but, of course, they don't help at all with these extremely small virus particles. So you're, you're basically putting exactly the, the people who are most vulnerable in vicinity of the people who are most likely to be infectious. Uh, and so these hospitals then turn into this where COVID distribution centers. Uh, and then wherever you send these people back to, uh, they're going to infect exactly the wrong people because who do, as it were, old, unhealthy people 
live with other old unhealthy people, right? So you're, you're sort of setting yourself up as a government and a medical sector to be itself uh, the most efficient distributor anyway. Uh, and so it, it, it very quickly morphed into a kind of a, a theater in which the only people who were truly separated from others were the healthy part of the population. You made them less healthy by sort of keeping them from being outside, from exercising, eating well, from socializing with others. So you gradually reduce their, their health, uh, their sort of you know, immune fitness, their uh, ability to withstand all kinds of diseases. You're crashing the economy. You're preventing uh, real protection and real health uh, around the people who would need it most. Uh, and of course, you're enabling this kind of huge authoritarianism. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of madness uh, in all kinds of ways. And it was recognized to be madness, of course, by the pandemic plans pre-2020, pre uh, when, you know, it was just a consensus of, of over 100 years that one should never do something as stupid as lockdowns. But, you know, um, the, the China example uh, just convinced a lot of uh, health bureaucrats in the West that, oh, no, uh, you know, we can do this. And isn't it bloody marvelous that we can be at the buttons of the whole of society and sort of pretend to be its saviors. And then, of course, you very quickly got all kinds of commercial interests going. You know, the vaccine pushers saw uh, um, an opportunity to sell their vaccines to the entire world population. Uh, and then, of course, the mask uh, distributors and producers sort of see a chance. And there's a chance to all the people who are involved in all this online delivery and online stuff because they can then outmuscle all the local shops, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So you, you get this emerging coalition of, of businesses, particularly very large businesses, who, who basically benefit from this. And then, of course, you've got all the theater of sort of trying to cover up all your mistakes, which happened very quickly, because, of course, you know, it very quickly became clear to governments that they stuffed up in 101 ways. Well, how do you prevent the population from being angry at you? Well, you double down and you censor uh, science uh, and reason for that says that you stuffed up. Uh, and so you then sort of activate this huge censorious machine. Um, and of course, you know, because the security services were very quickly involved in all of this, they knew how to do that. And so they then formed another coalition, with, particularly with big tech, to, to sort of institutionalize censorship in a, in a way we've never seen before. So the West has now got a, a kind of an operating ministry of Western propaganda going. So sort of, you know, keep pretending that the vaccines are useful rather than detrimental to the health of large parts of the population. Keep pretending that the lockdown saved lives rather than cost a lot of lives. Keep pretending that school closures were not bad, even though lots of international organizations very quickly said, oh, no, don't do this. You're sort of, you know, uh, throwing a whole generation of children under the bus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's been extraordinary to sort of watch this train wreck unfold. Uh, and you can sort of understand each and every decision, you know, for local political reasons and ask covering and whatnot. Man, from, from sort of looking from afar, it's just astonishing how, how much damage the West has done to itself. And, and the kind of strange situation we now find ourselves in with these globalist class having been coached out and sort of, you know, criminalized itself so much that they can't really go back. And so now they really have to try and sort of make a, a Western empire of it, uh, lest they're sort of found out and, and, you know, hounded by their own populations. So that's the situation we now find ourselves in, you know, a, a minority uh, has realized what goes on. Uh, and they must now, as it were, 
try to figure out their own personal way uh, and hopefully also help others find a way out of this darkness uh, and towards a Western reform movement. Right, so so that's an excellent exegesis. Um, so I think you're hinting at, uh, you know, the next phase, which is, you know, how, how does the resistance, I mean, I eventually, you know, uh, Charles de Gaulle, you know, took over France. And I, I, my understanding is, you know, he was part of the resistance. Uh, he was part of the free French and so forth. And, and so there, there are instances for better, for worse. I mean, Pol Pot, I think was also forming, you know, sort of resistance against the erstwhile Cambodian government. So not every, not every, uh, resistance fighter is, you know, winds up with a better system, but let's stipulate, um, whether you're a, a Gaullist or not, um, that, we're going to maybe aim for you know something close to the Charles de Gaulle model, where we come up with a better uh, concept for France than than Nazi Germany had. Um, getting back to our Godwin's law. Um, so what 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 is uh, the resistance? What's the manifestation of the resistance? And against what are we resisting? Um, well, the resistance is different in the many countries that I look at. Um, I like what is now happening in the US, which we're talking about, uh, and I like what's happening now in the Netherlands. I'm a bit dismayed about the supposed resistance in the UK. Uh, and I'm also quite involved in the resistance in Australia, where it's really very early days yet, where you know the, the majority of the population is still fully in line with everything that's happened. Um, but if we think about the resistance, then it's, it's a motley crew. And there are lots of different groups doing lots of different things. Um, and so what you, for instance, have is, is people who are just resisting as families. They've sort of opted out of the local schools because they're afraid of losing their kids to the woke ideology that is now being inflicted on their children. And I think part of the reason the woke ideology is pushed so hard by big interests is because it's a divide and rule ideology. It makes everybody the enemy of everybody else. And so that, that helps, of course, the powers that be. Um, but there's resistance by families. There's also a resistance by small communities who are opting out of the mainstream health systems and saying, thinking to themselves, you know what, we can do this better. They're sort of opting out of the monetary systems. They're opting out of the mainstream political systems, setting up their own political parties or just organizing locally in terms of councils or states. Uh, and of course, the, the standout examples of that in, in the US are Florida, Texas, but also South Dakota, of course, is a, a very early mover away from, from as it were, the, the mainstream model. And that's really growing in the US now. The, the main hope must be that the US turns around before anybody else turns around. Um, but you have, as it were, similar movements uh, in the Netherlands. And, and there, again, lots of different groups. You have groups setting up their own education system. You have groups demonstrating. You have groups just meeting all over the country for coffee. You have groups who are protesting by putting up the flags upside down. You have Groups who are trying to forge coalitions with lots of people who are who are in various ways and for different reasons also belittled by the globalist class. That could be the farmers who are being belittled, or it could be uh, lots of small businesses who've lost their livelihoods, or it could be the victims of the vaccine damage, or it, it could be uh, the people who are, who are sort of are being ousted because of the energy bills that are sort of driven by, as it were, extreme climate yeah. ideology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the the resistance is, is in that sense, a, a very loose network, uh, and they cooperate better in some countries than other countries. But I would say their their personal agenda is is often to, as it were, ex to 
escape the extreme pain that uh, governments or their own communities are trying to foister upon them, trying to make a better lives for themselves, their families, or, and the groups they care about. Mm-hmm. And the long-run aim is, of course, to sort of bring back their countries, or at least a large part of their community, to some notion of sanity, so that it's a, it's a livable place again. Uh, and for some people in the resistance, that means just moving somewhere else, right? Sort of giving up on the, on the communities they were part of. So, you know, moving away out of New York and Boston and go and live somewhere sane, or at least somewhere more sane uh, at that moment. So moving to Miami or uh, somewhere else. Right? Um, and, and so you see all those kind of things. Um, and of course, you, you then get that within the resistance, there are all kinds of roles being taken up. One of the main roles has been just information provision, pushing back against all the medical nonsense that the mainstream uh, is saying, pushing back against all forms of sort of uh, extreme emergency stories as to the climate emergency or, uh, or, or the energy emergency. Um, and others are trying to sort of look ahead and sort of think, okay, wh- where is this going? Um, where does the long-run hope lie? What should we organize? What can we do as communities? And different countries are at different phases of that last part, I would say. Yeah, and I think you bring up a lot of excellent points there. Uh, one, one theme that I, I was listening or hearing while you were speaking is uh, emergency. Um, I think there's a miscategorization of emergency. And I think merger, emergency, much like your um, point about dividing and conquering the internal populace, is is a way of, 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 you know, having power. I mean, in a fire alarm, there's no cogitation. Um, you know, you, the fire alarm sounds, you, you run out for the exits because that you're under the assumption, I mean, there's a chance it's a false alarm, but e- either way, your you're kind of Pascal's wager um, is that, you know, the b- best situation is for you to, to act as if it's real because, you know, on the chance it's real, that's so far, far more dangerous than you're ignoring. Anyway, you're, you're you know, you're more likely to be damaged by your negative response to a, a, an actual event. Anyway, but but it seems that most of these things have in common their sense of emergency. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and everything gets presented, and I think it's probably more from the left than the right, um, as a, as a, a feeling moment that we feel this is a, a problem and we lose sense of magnitude. And I think, you know, you have had it presented from what I've seen the same voice in in quantitating. Um, these uh, different emergencies. I mean, it, it, you know, recently in the U.S., there was a whole brouhaha about gas stoves. You know that they were causing some problem. You know, and and uh, people having asthma and so forth. And I think this is minuscule. It's like, but but nonetheless, it was it was all taken up. And 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 our town, my my beautiful bucolic uh, um, near sub- suburb. Um, you know, they they have a plan to you know, make sure of this and make sure of that and have no new gas hookups to houses and so forth. Uh, I'm sure the fireplaces are the next to go. Um, and, and there's a, a, a kind of a, a, a willful um, ignorance or pushing aside of any rationality uh, scale perspective. Um, so where, where's the question here? Um, you can either take that up and, and run, but uh, you know, where, where does, where, what's the court of sanity? Where, where, who, on whom can we depend for adjudication of these various emergencies when people in general um, are bombarded by one after another? Uh, I mean, that's an interesting question. And I totally agree with you that emergencies are now the new dividing rule. But of course, they're, they're also the old dividing rule. Right? Machiavelli already said that 
a politician must skillfully use fear because uh, fear is always a winner from a political perspective. You can really count on fear uh, and you can manipulate people easily through fear. It's kind of like a, a recipe that's well trodden, well known uh, and very dependable, um, you know, whereas other things are less dependable. So we've seen that Giorgio Agamben in, in Italy has written on that uh, famously for a long time. He, he wrote a book in 2003, already analyzing the aftermath of 9-11 as sort of, you know, given the emergency excuse for all kinds of uh, mission creep from the government and the security services to, to sort of expand their power at the expense of everybody else. And of course, every time you go through these, these kind of, you know, huge security queues at the airport, you should be reminded, that, oh, yes, we're, we're, we're sort of still pretending that that is a, a huge problem and that these kind of x-rays machine really help uh, and that that is keeping us safe. No, it's not, but it's keeping a lot of sellers of x-rays machines uh, very rich. Thank you very much. Uh, and similarly with the gas stuff, right? I mean, uh, gas is one of the cleanest forms of energy we have from an environmental point of view. Uh, 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 but of course, if you sort of do away with uh, all your gas appliances, uh, and replace that by, let's say, electrical appliances. Well, then, of course, the seller of those electrical appliances is jumping up and down with joy and, and will fan the propaganda that says, oh, gas is bad, my appliances are good. Um, but, of course, you just move the problem of energy production to wherever the power plant is that produces the, the electricity. So I, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, the, all the emergency stuff is, uh, is, is, as it were, um, the political train having run away from itself. Um, if we then think of, okay, uh, you know, did I at the at the sort of you know, the start of the lockdown start to calculate stuff? Yes, we, we very quickly saw that the anxiety and the mental health loss was something like 10% of what makes life worthwhile. Um, we've now seen that there's sort of huge losses in terms of the quality of the health system. So. Lots of people got cancer, uh, lots of IVF treatments were canceled for the vaccines. There's now increasing evidence of lots of people losing their babies, of, of lots of people sort of having a compromised immune system. And so uh, lots of uh, tumors and other things grow more quickly. And so the, the net health effects for large parts of the population now look to be uh, tremendously negative. And of course, the long run effects of the economic collapse mean that governments and other institutions have less to spend on education, all kinds of other things, and the school disruptions are coming home to roost, and this will certainly mean that there's a whole generation who is less smart and less rich than their parents. Um, so there's there's not much doubt that this has been a, a huge own goal, but of course the question remains, how are we going to escape from this? What are we going to do as individuals and communities, and what should we do as countries to get back to sanity? Now, you ask basically, well, where's where's the people we can trust? And I think I think it's very important to say the answer is no one. You, you should not. You should not bring up. Not even me. You know. You should not. You, you should not put up anybody as the new authority who will have the truth. That's exactly the problem. As soon as you do that, uh, no matter whom it is, that person will become co-opted. You know, their their status and their ego will run away with themselves. They'll become uh, part of the problem. That's that's not how science works, and that's not how communities. Can Communities must be made up of, of different perspectives. They must, in that sense, each person must themselves become interested again, having their own view of what the truth is. And they won't be perfect. They won't be right. They'll disagree with others. But if they have a, a similar interest, then they will start to agree on, on lots of important stuff. 
And I think we've seen a beautiful example of that, and we discussed it earlier, that people from many different walks of life have really come to exactly the same conclusion as to what's wrong nowadays. They've seen this globalist class emerge, uh, and they've sort of seen the, the overstretch and the abuse of power of their governments. They've seen the censorious efforts by big tech and by ministries of propaganda in the various countries. They've seen their kids hurt. And, and they sort of look around and see that they are now in this quite large resistance community where everybody has seen exactly the same thing. And so they, they didn't need to be told this by one single source of truth. They heard it from hundreds, but also from their own expertise and what they could see from their own children or their own line of work. They could see, yeah, no, this is happening. And so in a sense, we, we should put much more trust in people and their communities to, to be able, if they're willing, to sort of figure out what's roughly true and to sort of, you know, find sources of, of reason, but find multiple sources of reasons and then sort of, you know, weed out what is sort of the less or less likely and less important stuff and come to their own views. We should not say, well, you know, the authority is betrayed as where's the new authority. That's just running from one dictator to another one. Right. So the answer must be none. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, interesting points you have there. Uh, it sparked a few thoughts of mine. Um, one is that, you know, I'm not sure exactly how it is today, but for a, a number of decades in, in Europe, uh, the best uh, espousers of free markets uh, were, you know, the former Iron Curtain countries of East Europe. And uh, Winston Churchill, I, I believe, said at one point that the longest um, uh, that um, Socialism is the longest, most painful, arduous road between capitalism and capitalism. Um, <laughs> and then there's uh, one other. Uh, oh, so th 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 there's just one tiny point. This is a little topical thing that's happening again in my bucolic suburb. I live in Newton, Massachusetts, and we have a, a vote on the override, uh, which is to give more money. So they, they, they raise their taxes every year. They are allowed to, to raise it 2.5% every year um, by statute. And they always kind of suck up to that amount. They, they, they're even if the rate of inflation as it had been was much lower the previous decade, like 1.4 percent. They're always going as much as they can, and now they need an override over that. Um, and it, the funny thing is, I'm kind of come to the point here. Um, this is it, 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 at, at a time of, of observed failure of their model. The, this, our schools, we have the same number of kids. The population has been static for you know a decade or two, um, but the schools went down. 14% in enrollment. So even though we don't pay, it's a sunk cost, we pay taxes, but but the schools are free. Um, people have pulled their kids out of the school at an alarm, you know, incredible rate, and that's never been seen before in our, our you know, bucolic suburb. Um, and, and to go spend 30, 40, $50,000 to put their kids in private school, just to avoid the public schools. And I think there are two major reasons. One is that the public schools were shut down during COVID. And number two, is that the, the, the parents got to see on Zoom what they were teaching in the schools and those mm -hmm. this divide and conquer stuff. And, and you know, one class of students being told that they are evil embodiment, uh, almost literally. And and so they, they've, they've marched out. And, and nonetheless, this, you know, I mean, I know Facebook cut their uh, staff by 20 percent. Uh, Apple cut their staff by 20 percent. I mean, a lot of companies have had down years. Um, uh, you know, Twitter by 50%. Uh, but our city has cut by 0%, even though their model has failed. Um, it seems that they don't really quite get the message. We're going to have a vote ostensibly tomorrow, unless there's a huge snowstorm. Um, but 
you know, say that that's a little plug for the uh, no override Newton uh, uh, committee. Um, but it, it, it's it's you know it's it's even so it's a very tight vote here. I think we you know it's a good chance we're going to lose this vote because people, you know, I, I it, to your point, they 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 understand uh, when they've been hit over the head. And to use another quote, I got one more after this, but. Um, uh, H.L. Mencken, who was kind of the Mark Twain incarnate a few years later, uh, early 20th century, he said uh, democracy is the system by which uh, people vote for what they want and they de deserve to get it good and hard. Uh, <laughs> and that, I know. I, I'm not sure how long it takes for people to, to get it. And maybe I'm just wrong because I'm, maybe I'm getting something that shouldn't be gotten or whatnot. But I'm, I'm going to just pop in this quote here uh, to see your thoughts on it. Uh, this is uh, um, my favorite, uh, aside from you, my favorite economist, um, uh, Sol, uh, and you can read it here. You know, it, 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 we put decisions in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. And, and so, you know, we, in a sense, like H.L. Mencken uh, says, we, we deserve, in a sense, to get it good and hard if we don't make them pay when they don't have to pay. Um, and I've seen this over and over again. Um, you know, throughout our bureaucracies, and this whole concept of bureaucracy uh, is its own problem. And I know you've, you're kind of an expert on this. Maybe we can segue into some of your own work on this topic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, those are, those are very important points. And, um, and, and I, if we're going to go back to points made, I, I also want to go back to the point of, of sort of the emergency uh, being akin to, you know, a, build, a building is on fire, supposedly. Uh, you sort of, you head for the exits as a safety precaution. Yeah, I, I feel the lockdowns were more akin to saying, okay, we think the building is on fire. And so for your safety, please jump out of the window. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, just to be sure, that's right, the fire won't consume you. Right, and, and that that is the precautionary principle. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's actually, that's actually so, you know, they, they, they say laughter is kind of release of pain. That, you know, I think the essence, of, I mean, we laugh, we, we laugh, we cry, because laughter and crying are sort of, on. The, it's not like left and right, they're actually a part of circle. circle. But, but laughter is kind of this, when you avoid pain, and that, that is so hugely funny. I mean, God. <laughs> Isn't it? So, so, but to come back to bureaucracy, and that is a, a deep problem. And, and, and it is a deep problem for the reason that, you know, bureaucracy is eternal. You know, we've had bureaucracies for thousands of years now. You know, the, the Chinese are sort of said to be the main inventor. And lots of things that we now take for granted in bureaucracies are sort of Chinese derived. You know, there's meritocracy and appointment. Uh, you have a standing bureaucracy that looks after staff. You have specializations. You have uh, exams. You have specialized educational institutions. You've got departments, uh, all kinds of things, right? So, so basically, bureaucracy is eternal. Um, and the nasty thing to say in that sense, and that goes a little bit against the quote you just put up, is that bureaucracies, in a long-run sense, have expanded. Uh, are kind of successful uh, in the sense that they can do stuff. And also, most big businesses now are also bureaucracies. Right? So if, if people tend to make this mistake of thinking, well, there's the government and then there's this wonderful thing called free enterprise. 
But you go to, you know, sort of Google and Amazon and all these other large businesses, and it's as if you walk into a government department. You know, there are lots of procedures there. Uh, there, are, there, there are lots of sort of uh, different functional units. They keep sending each other updates and position statements. Uh, there are sort of diversity programs. Uh, they, they talk of stakeholders. It's kind of like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm back. And so the way that they operate is also extremely similar. So, for instance, you know, the main trick of how government bureaucracies get stuff done is that every large complex problem is chopped into very many small bits. And then they sort of try to glue back uh, the small solutions into solving the big problems. That's exactly how all these large corporations do it as well. So the, the, the essential aspect of a bureaucracy, which is that you've got these mindless little small units designated to do a small task. They don't see the damage they do to other tasks, but somehow they do something. And then, you know, what they do gets added up to the activities of all the other small units to somehow make a solution towards a large issue. Well, that describes not just the health bureaucracy, that describes General Motors, you know, that describes Tesla. That describes uh, a, a pharmaceutical company. Uh, and so in, in that sense, there is no escape from bureaucracies. There is just how can we do bureaucracy better? How can we, as it were, have a competition between bureaucracies so that, you know, they, they, uh, lots of them die regularly enough or sort right. of get chopped to size, right? And so, but within bureaucracy, this unaccountability is entirely not, not just normal, it's part of the strength of bureaucracies. They must have unaccountability. Because otherwise, you can't say to a unit, look, you do this small thing, but don't worry about how it fits into everything else. We'll worry about that. That must be, that must be the core way in which you organize something. Uh, and so this, the, in that sense, yes, the, the, the news on bureaucracy is terrible uh, because it's, it's unavoidable. It has won against many other forms of organization. It is there in big business as much as it's there in government. And, and hence, the long-run name of the reform game is not get rid of bureaucracy per se, but just do bureaucracy better, have an ecosystem in which they fight well, other bureaucracies more, they die more quickly, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I, I read an article, which I uh, which I mean, I probably can find, but I read it maybe 20 years ago. Um, it was, uh, I, you know, I like to find silver linings. Maybe, maybe I'm just a Pollyanna kind of guy, but, you know, the silver lining, uh, in this case of Enron, the collapse of Enron was that it, it was allowed to collapse. So the article was talking about the, the malfeasance at Enron, you know, the certain culture of this and that they were, you know, they were kind of doing a shell game with their money and, and so forth and so on. And they were bad. Let, let, let's stipulate they did bad acts. Uh, mm -hmm. Fine. And then he compared it to Amtrak, um, which is the American, uh, you know, governmental, monopoly on 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 commuter uh trains and so forth and and in intercity transport and there's all kinds of malfeasance going on in amtrak but it can't die so it becomes mm -hmm. a you know the zombie edifice mm -hmm. that keeps you know has a hunger but it is not you know operating well and so you know other companies learn from the corpse of enron because it died and mm -hmm. um and you know, there's basically uh, the term of art, I guess, in economics is moral hazard, which I don't really like, but there it is. Uh, there's kind of a moral hazard when you don't allow it to die. And, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. because it's topical, 
uh, and because you're here, um, and maybe you may not have full expertise on this topic, but I think there's kind of a moral hazard in what's happened with banks, because um, banks are in the news, Silicon Valley Bank, and then Signature Bank, and I guess Republic uh, Bank, where, you know, there's fa failures. And, you know, lo and behold, the government's going to, U.S. government's going to come in and be backstop them, um, which is all well and good. I mean, you can have a catcher and you can have a backstop behind the catcher, but you can't backstop everything. Yeah, I guess the, the movie that won the Academy Awards last night was Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, to use that phrase, you can't be everywhere and do everything all at once. And you can't backstop everything with just this thing called government, which, I mean, what is it anyway? It's backed up with the fact that they can print money, um, mm -hmm. which can go into the money supply, but that has its own obvious cost and in inflation. As we've seen, they backstopped uh, COVID. And, mm -hmm. and what, you know, I used to have this T-shirt. My parents went to Las Vegas and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. You know, my, my bureaucrats, you know, did a lockdown. All I got was this lousy inflation. And, and now we're, you know, we're going to change the emergency to banks and we're going to get mm -hmm. more. Uh, anyway, so, so um, you probably can find a question in there. Um, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because I'm, I'm teaching here in the Masters of Finance. So I've been teaching my students about some of the stuff that's been going on in the financial markets. And there, of course, there's, there's so much to say, right? Uh, one, one, the, the main point to make about the last couple of years about financial markets is indeed that the government, in a way, has cheated on the money holdings of everybody else by printing a lot more of it. Uh, and that sort of, you know, bought them out of trouble in the short run, but in the longer run, it got you inflation. Uh, but here's the kicker from an American point of view, which is that, of course, there's almost 30 trillion US dollars uh, in holdings elsewhere in the world. And if there's 10% inflation, then th that effectively means a tax on all that of $3 trillion. And so maybe up to half of all this backstopping has just been paid by foreigners. Now, that's a nice little transfer to the US. right? Uh, and if you want to make it even more nasty, of course, one of the reasons for that is that so much of the international economy is in dollars. That's why all these foreign banks elsewhere in the world want to have uh, reserves in U.S. dollars and, and want to have treasury bonds and whatnot. Um, but of course, part of the reason for that is that, uh, you know, the American military makes it very hard for lots of governments to truly opt out of that dollarization of their economy. And so in a certain way, the, the, the most important part of the American bureaucracy, which is the U.S. Army, which is also a bureaucracy, right? Uh, and nobody's, nobody's saying, well, shouldn't that die, do you? So, you know, there are, there are parts of the American bureaucracy every American patriot wants to keep on going. Well, it, it's also partly getting you quite a few bucks from the rest of the world. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's a long-term, short-term problem. I mean, sure, a little sure. bit, little bit. We are getting sidetracked here to a, to a certain extent, right? Um, but but you're, you're right that, as it were, you know, it's, it's good to have, as it were, uh, a form of renewal within government bureaucracy is possible. And it is possible. I mean, in the long run, lots of government departments have gone bankrupt or have at least been allowed to die and taken over. And of course, one of the one of the old ways in which bureaucracy dies is that just there was a foreign invader who took over the country as a whole and axed everything about the conquered bureaucracy they didn't like. That was a renewal drive. That certainly happened in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which I know that part of your family came from. Their solution to the problems of that bureaucracy was that they lost a war and somebody else took over the place and reformed it. 
uh, and that historically is not a very abnormal solution to lots of bureaucratic problems. Um, but to, to 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 sort of you know make the point on the, on this kind of bureaucracy, shouldn't you sort of let more of them die? Yes, you should. Uh, and of course, part of the genius of democracy until recently has been that that is partly what you can do as a democratic system. You can sort of figure out, oh, you know, this part of the bureaucracy is not working. Let's privatize it, or let's just stop doing it altogether, or let's totally reorganize it. Now, unfortunately, that has become more and more difficult the last 20 years. and has become more and more, as it were, a, a single growth of not just bureaucracy, but also large corporations, the media, and the securities um, establishment that has sort of become one voice almost, you know, one mind, one group. Uh, and of course, they don't really want to cut in their own flesh, which sort of gets them a big problem because it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Um, they can't really cut themselves. But then the question is, well, what are they going to tax? Where are, they, where, where are the resources going to come from? And they're increasingly running out of resources. And that's, of course, truly when, as it were, the ship will hit the fan and you may get a real reform drive. So we're rounding uh, towards the end of the hour. And um, I, I'm curious, you, you mentioned the things we can do, and I know you're uh, part of a, um, a group in Australia. Maybe you could talk, touch on that. Um, and again, I, I mentioned uh, in, the, in our green room, uh, my grandmother's uh, colorful phrase, which I'll clean up slightly, uh, which is uh, don't let them uh, defecate on your face, open your mouth. And so there's been, you know, my impulse through uh, COVID has been to open my mouth. Um, and, you know, I, I I got snapped at in some of my groups um, when when everyone wanted my tennis, I play tennis. So our squash and tennis club, <laughs> they closed tennis, <laughs> outdoor tennis. Um, <laughs> and when they reopened, they took away the benches and they made us have our own set of tennis balls so that oh. Guy wouldn't touch your tennis balls. Um, <laughs> crazy stuff. Anyway, so I, I, I've, I've sent in notes and letters, and you know, tried to rationalize or, or put, put into rational perspective the, the actual threat. I mean, we're, we're a bunch of non-smokers who are normal body habitus because we're tennis players. Like ipso facto, there's a selection bias there, no doubt. But you know, the, the oldsters, maybe a few eighty-year-olds and whatnot, fine. They, they could, they could not play tennis. If they chose, but everybody else, like we could play tennis, but no, we couldn't. And so, so a lot of my my you know voicing this stuff became like because I was banging my head against this wall, and frankly, they were banging back at me um, to a large extent. And I said, I, you know, I got to say something. So I started you know doing these solo um, podcasts and whatnot, and and you know trying to present data and so forth. Anyway, so so that's my own personal fight back. Now, I'm not sure how successful I've been, but but what's what's the larger scale? How how do we do this, and what's your uh, initiative currently? Um, so I I think the larger scale is that resistance groups have to have to organize more and more, and the various parts of that resistance. Right. So uh, as you know, I'm part of the Brownstone Institute, which I think is a is a very interesting and important organization run by. Uh, you know the great Jeffrey Tucker, who already in January 2020 uh, warned against government overreach. So he was extremely quick on the ball. Um, I only saw it in March 2020. So, you know, well done, Jeffrey. Um, uh, and that is sort of as amalgamated a group of thinkers who are trying to look at the problem from very different angles. Lots of them are medics, but also philosophers, economists, psychologists, educators. 
uh, politicians, former army people, lots of people. So they're basically trying to shine their own individual light uh, on the problem and getting a 360 perspective as to what went on, uh, what is going on, uh, and of course also gazing into the future. Uh, and I very much see my role because I, I sort of come from the world of you know how to design bureaucracies, uh, how to design economies, how to how to think about reforms that are doable, that are practical, that are implementable. That's very much sort of the world I, I come from and have taught in and, and have sort of been involved in. I very much see my role uh, with my co-authors, the sort of sketch institutional reform. Um, but there are, of course, other roles to be played. And one of the roles is that there, there, there's got to be, as it were, a building of these what are called parallel societies, you know, communities doing their own education, doing their own health, doing their own media, uh, doing maybe even perhaps their own small local economy, their own currency, um, their own information system as to where you should shop, uh, uh, whom to date, how to find like-minded people. So there's got to be, as it were, a bottom-up growth. Uh, and that's where I think lots of exciting things are happening, particularly in the US. There's a lot of homeschoolers who've really, as it were, broken free from the woke stranglehold. Um, there, there, there are lots of groups finding each other in resistance to the authoritarianism and realizing they have much more in common than they, they thought they have. Uh, and one of, the, one of the tasks still to happen, I think, is that there's got to be a little bit of a marrying up of that, as it were, you know, intellectual contribution that, it, that is happening of people who used to work at the top of the system, right? because most brownstone people sort of used to work at the top of the system. You know, it, it includes people who are sort of part of building the vaccine systems in the US, like Martin Kulorf or Jed Bhattacharya, you know, who, who's sort of one of the top people in public health. Um, and they've got to be married up to some degree to, as it were, all the bottom-up uh, initiatives undertaken throughout the country uh, of sort of small communities trying to escape the oppression um, but of course, uh, also in need of, of sort of both representation and organization. Um, and there, there, there needs to be a whole, as it were, middle society formed of, let's say, you know, uh, good accreditation systems for all the homeschooling, uh, good forms of sort of local public health, which are then, you know, private, but go away from the sort of the extreme private health system in the US, which is extremely expensive and, and sort of uh, has a lot of cracks missing in it. Um, and there, there, in that sense, is a, is a lot of things to do there. Well, that's lovely. I'm going to just um, <clears throat> pop in a few uh, pictures. Um, so this, this is um, uh, your Twitter feed, and um, mm -hmm. I, I commend people to go look at it. Uh, you actually uh, retweeted um, uh, Jeffrey Tucker's retweet of your article. Um, so this is your most recent article in the Brownstone Institute, and people can find it here, uh, how to mm -hmm. cut uh, the Gordian, the new Gordian knots. Um, I, uh, I do some uh, shameless self-promotion here as well. Uh, fortunately, I am part of the uh, Brownstone coterie, um, and this is my own article uh, back from December, The Mysterious Case of Zika Microcephaly's Disappearance, and I, I always like to put in a plug for my book uh, because I can. Uh, it's overturning Zika, the pandemic that never was. There are a lot of uh, items redolent, uh, are pre-redolent, I guess, um, for um, COVID and how things, they were overreach. Uh, I like to tell people I managed to get my self-portrait on the cover of my book, um, <laughs> overturning Zika. You can buy it on Amazon. It's coming out in Brazil 
uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, by a major publisher there. Um, so yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to a rollout yeah. there. Um, and so, and, and your efforts uh, carry on to other aspects. Um, you have a book, uh, The Game of Mates. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I don't think, I think it goes beyond Australia, of course. Here's a review of your book. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if I put up the Amazon page, but I'm sure it, it's findable. Uh, but here mm -hmm. are a number of your works, um, Game of Mates, Rigged. Uh, I think people can kind of find uh, some um, uh, echo of, of some of the themes you mentioned today. Uh, mm -hmm. But this is how favors uh, bleed the nation. Uh, and of course, you spelled favors wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> My mom was English. It's Her Majesty's English. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, no. So <laughs> I'm going to uh, just say this one thing. Um, we were at the uh, we were at a fundraiser for the uh, British School of Boston because not because we, our kids but my friend's uh, young child goes there and so we were part of trivia night and so they had an event you know it's a lot of fun <laughs> they asked uh, a couple of questions that made sense only for the Brits uh, one was the longest word uh, in the English language without a vowel and so oh oh. <laughs> so you know frank, frankly I'm a Scrabble guy and I've been through this. And uh, it's either TISK, T-S-K, or nth, the nth degree. Uh, some people think it's, you know, which is a like expression of exasperation, P-F-F-F, P-H-F-F-T, or something like that. But they came up with rhythm. And and um, and actually, they're mm -hmm. wrong, mind you, because if you're going to include a Y, it's nymphly. Like, <laughs> her behavior was nymphly. But I said, quietly, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the Y is a vowel. It, it's, it's upsilon from Greek. Um, that, that's a vowel. It's like, no, why is a consonant? It's like, no, that's what that's when it's yellow or or Let's put it this. Why doesn't just have, you know, it's 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 not single consonant, you know, it's right. sort of biconsonant. Right. <laughs> it's like it's like quantum consonant. It's whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Anyway, so so that that's I am I'm just teasing about the favor part, but that's so good. Uh, getting back to Churchill, uh he, he said that, uh, I believe he said that, um, you know, the United, United, UK and, uh, and England are two countries uh, separated by common language. That was very much an evidence. <laughs> I, know. I know. Well, look, I, I'm on the British side of that particular fence. Thank you very much. You know, with an English mom, I, I'm afraid on, on that one, I can't help you. All right. Well, um, you, you and I can hang around and chat for a little bit. Uh, we'll make everybody else envious. But I'm going to say goodbye to our audience. Um, and do you have any uh, closing words for them? Um, yes, I, I would like to say that I, I think in the long run sense, you know, the, the resistance is winning. Uh, and it may not always seem that way with all the censorship going around. But of course, the, the, the resistance in that sense stands for a new enlightenment. It stands for, you know, dance, song, brotherhood, uh, sisterhood, fraternity. Uh, it stands for a return to more democratic notions for... Uh, people being deliberative or raising kids to be optimistic about themselves, critical, oriented towards building up their own notion of truth and what is good in life. Uh, and so it's, a, it's very much a, a positive story away from this notion that we should all be afraid of everybody else and we should feel badly about ourselves and sort of know our place in this life as, as low lives who have to look up to their better. So uh, in that sense, I, I think there's just no way that, uh, as it were, our side is going to lose that. I think we are in a historic struggle, but also one in which there can only ever be one winner. You know, that, that, that kind of misery cannot win out. It's just unproductive, make people unhappy, unhealthy. 
uh, and whether or not it's via migration or internal renewal, uh, I do think our side will win. So uh, keep good cheer and uh, yeah, enjoy, I would almost say. All right, lovely. Well, thank you. Those are inspirational words. Thank you. And goodbye to everybody else for now.